Hello, everybody. This is Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasper. This is Frank Pelicone. You are listening to episode 127, Top Five Horror Movies in 1999, and this brings us to the end of the 90s horror list. Finally, Frank. Um, really doesn't seem like that long ago that we were just talking about 1990 and 91, all those movies, but a quick year, I guess. That's been a fast year. Um. So yeah. Um. We um we're here at the end. Uh, we've done horror all this month. Um, well, I guess we had our special episode about Doom, but that was horror in a different way, I think. Um, <clears throat> at least in my disappointment. So, <laughs> I guess we need to talk about '90s horror in the sense of, I guess, giving an overview a little bit. I'd like to hear like what you think and we've talked a little bit about this throughout the episodes but like what you think the pivotal moments were of the 90s and maybe why that happened and then um where you think the like the long lasting kind of like effects of the 90s are like now like if they're still reach so I think one of the things you can take away from this year specifically is um, more of a return to uh, non-franchise horror movies. Um, So there's a lot of movies from this year. uh, While maybe a lot of them aren't like the best movies in the world are still um, their own standalone properties. um, Some of which would go on to become franchises or spawn sequels, but they still were original uh, films. Um, which I think shows that there's an increasing confidence, I guess, in the profitability of horror films, um, and maybe interest from, uh, directors and writers to create things that are more than just, you know, a paint by number sequel to an existing franchise. Um, and you look at a certain, certain movies from this year, and again, not to say that these are like great movies or anything, but um, you have End of Days, um, uh, The Haunting, and The Haunting of Hill House or The House on Haunted Hill, um, Idle Hands, Lake Placid, um, some weird sequels like Carry to the Rage. Um, <clears throat> there's things that are like Burton's Sleepy Hollow, which is more or less a horror film um, in its own way. And then there's a lot of uh, Japanese movies that came out this year, um, most of which are not very good. Um, One of which was supposed to be on this list that I actually enjoy quite a bit called Shinkoku, which is um, more of like a folklore-based Japanese horror movie about a girl returning to her... um, her hometown that's this like small provincial island um where her best friend who was a psychic is like disappeared and ends up being dead um not like the greatest movie or anything but a a pretty decent like standalone movie um and it kind of takes us into the 2000s um we're about mm, maybe like 10 years away from the true like horror revival that we're in right now um, where horror is actually taken seriously and considered like a viable artistic genre, but there's plenty of stuff in the early 2000s. I think that's 
that's worth watching and a lot of it you know is this is kind of the genesis point of that um because they can make a lot of horror movies can be made for relatively cheap in relation to like other genres and tend to turn a pretty decent profit regardless um so yeah uh and some pivotal movies this year i mean like you have a movie that gains a lot of critical acclaim in the sixth sense um you know starts the career of m night Shyamalan. um not included on this list because i really just don't know what to say about it really like i don't particularly care to talk about that movie because i think that like all the talking comes into talking about the twist and like once you know it what's the interest in really having that discussion um but still like you know a movie that showed that it could gain critical acclaim and be profitable um and started the career of one of the more prolific filmmakers of the past 20 years um quality of movies aside um have you seen old have you seen old yet by any chance no i really have no interest like i I actually think it's a really stupid idea yeah yeah really bad yeah i honestly have no interest in seeing that movie you know it's funny that um friend of the podcast uh zeke lawrence actually um texted me the other night and said hey have you watched old and i was like no man i don't care to see that movie and he was like yeah it looks awful i just thought maybe if you'd seen it maybe it was worth watching but old is i feel like Shyamalan movies are things now where i'm not going to ever go out of my way to see them but i'll watch them all at some point so if that makes yeah. any sense yeah, yeah, yeah. mostly because i, will, I, won't I go mean i thought to see them and i probably won't watch most of them so. Like, I actually enjoyed Devil, which is one of his mm-hmm. movies from the it's 2000s. Um, the Visit or whatever I thought was fine. Like, it wasn't a great it movie, but it was yeah. effective enough for what it was. Um, yeah, but then shit like Old and I don't know. There was another one not too long ago that I watched that I just was not super impressed with. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. But um, less sequels this year than in previous years, especially like the year before, where pretty much everything was a sequel or a remake. I mean, you have um, there's a Candyman sequel and a Children of the Corn sequel this year and a Dusk Till Dawn direct-to-video sequel. Um, that weird-ass Carrie 2. I don't know if you've ever seen that. The Rage or whatever. I, I have not, no. Um, it's not very good. Uh, no, I, one one thing I noted as I was looking through the list is um, in dreams. Didn't don't you like that movie? In dreams, the Robert Downey Jr. Um, is the serial killer. Oh, it's okay. Oh, okay. I think you told me to watch it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth watching. Okay. Um, it's pretty goofy though. A lot of it sure there, there, there's some decent scenes in that movie like it's got a nice um i mean obviously it's got a nice like dreamlike quality to a lot of it um yeah it's a very workman-like movie i mean it's, yeah i mean it's, it's bruce robinson writing and neil jordan directing i mean so it's you know it's going to be competent um but yeah it could have been more but um it was all right i liked it overall yeah it's fine yeah. but no so, i'm um I'm good with our list. I think that it's a a nice representation of you know a bunch of different kinds of horror movies, really. 
Yeah. All right. So you want to go ahead and get started then? We can get started. All right. So number five on your list is Stir of Echoes. It is directed by David Cope. It stars Kevin Bacon in the lead role, Catherine Erb, Ileana Douglas, Liza Weil, and Kevin Dunn. It has a 68% from critics and a 70% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about the movie and uh, why it's on the list? Uh, so Bacon and Herb. Herb, really? I always thought it was Herby. Um, yeah, I looked it up. That's Herb. Yeah. Are young parents that are living in this house they've recently rented in um, Boston, I guess. Um, their son is kind of this, like, I know there's like simultaneous, but like Sixth Sense esque, like, kind of sensitive kid that's like seeing like ghosts in the house that you don't see. Um, Kevin Bacon is a guy who's sort of put his life on hold to be a dad and a husband. Um, and I guess Catherine Herb, like finds out that she's like newly pregnant with their second child. Um, so they go to this party and uh, her sister, who's kind of this like free spirit, hippie spiritualist um, is like talking about hypnotism. So Kevin Bacon is like, yeah, like where you can try and hypnotize me because I know it doesn't do anything. Uh, but when she does, she sort of unwakens this thing in him where he can now see ghosts, um, or at least like see sort of like some precognitive, like spiritual power sort of awakens in him. Um, so he begins to see this dead girl in his house. Um, and then they invite, or no, they go out um and have this pre like the little kid has this precognitive notion to have this ask for the specific babysitter um who turns out to be the sister of this girl that's disappeared um so for whatever reason she kidnaps the little boy because the little boy's like talking about her sister and um you find out that the girl had like disappeared from the neighborhood they live in um so Kevin Bacon becomes increasingly like, I don't want to say detached from reality, but like invested in this sort of like spiritual reality that's kind of building around him and trying to find uh, the body of this like missing girl. And he starts tearing apart his house. Um, so end result is that it turns out that um, uh, some neighborhood kids had tried to rape this girl and ended up killing her by accident and then their fathers in order to protect them uh sealed her up in the basement of this house that they're running like behind a um a wall in the basement like the cask of a her like into the wall um so they end up freeing her and um basically like bringing justice to her spirit um and she's able to move on and that's it um which is a pretty pretty common like horror trope really like the idea of the um the forlorn spirit that's like just looking for someone to listen to him to like you know i mean it's the lady in white whatever there's plenty of movies <clears throat> and that are very similar um except that the story is written by richard matheson 
uh, one of my favorite horror writers. Um, he comes from the 60s or 70s, I think, is when the story was written. Maybe the 70s. Um, as a film, it's, Nin- it's just kind of there. actually. Oh, wow. Oh, hold yeah, on. No, no, no. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I, I got that. Good. No, 58. Yeah, 58. So, yeah, that is pretty old. Um, Film-wise, the movie's just kind of there. Uh, one of my biggest criticisms of the movie is honestly like the direction the directorial choices and just the way the visual effects are filmed it's very like very obvious i guess um it feels like very paint by numbers in a lot of ways except that the performances are all really good um it's one of kevin bacon's better performances i think in the 90s um and he's like really invested in the role and not a lot of overacting um this is a guy that would go on to do uh whatever that invisible man movie was a couple years later um, where he just like completely is like chewing scenery. But Mm -hmm. uh, in this movie, like he's pretty grounded and like the kind of like detachment from reality is sort of a slow burn with him. Um, But overall, I think it's a pretty good story. Again, it's, it's something that like you've seen enough times, but it's uh, it's, it's competent and well done. And um, in terms of the acting, and you know, I I think it's worth a watch. Yeah, I, I I agree. The, the The acting really holds us together. Everybody that's in it is really good. Um, uh, including all the, all those principals that I mentioned are all really good in it. Kevin Bacon's it's it, like you said, it's before he kind of like starts like chewing scenery, which I mean he's had roles in the past ten years where he's been good in it, but um that I've seen, but. Sure. He definitely got into like some kind of rut for a while. Um, Catherine Herb, I've always loved. Um, <clears throat> somebody that like probably doesn't get enough roles at times. Um, I guess she was on what like SVU or something for years. Um, no idea. Ileana Douglas is somebody who like I I must have definitely had like a crush on Ileana Douglas like in the nineties. I think like the late nineties. Like I I absolutely love her. Um, still do. And Kevin Dunn is a guy who doesn't get enough credit. Who's like in all these different things um who plays the father of the boy um that ended up killing the girl but um like that guy's amazing like he's been like in so many damn things um over the years on television movies but he's really good too um so yeah the acting holds this together to me i thought there was third act problems with the screenplay i thought it was like a little rushed and jumbled like um some of the stuff in the third act like revelations and all those kind of things um, and, but you're right. The directing was like really the thing that like held it back. And I mean, David Cope is a guy who kind of does these like smaller movies that he directs. I mean, he's most known for as a writer. Um, um, and his shit ranges from like really good to really bad. I mean, like he's got, you know, uh, Jurassic Park and Carlito's Way like on his resume and like then he also has like the Shadow and Snake Eyes the Cage movie right. and the Spider-Man first Spider-Man movie he has on his resume uh War of the Worlds he has on his resume uh but then he also has Crystal Skull right like I mean <clears throat> he's kind of like all over the place but um his movies that he's directed like are pretty pretty shitty overall um but he takes on these smaller movies he also directed that uh, you should have left movie with Kevin Bacon that came out last year. That's really bad. That's on Peacock. Yeah. I've never um, uh, bothered to watch it. Yeah, you shouldn't. Um, 
it's it's awful but but yeah so uh like you said it's just kind of like there like um his directing and i do think it kind of brings it down some but um yeah but i mean it's an enjoyable movie i'd actually never seen it after all these years it was the first time i actually ever saw it so i um I liked it well enough. I didn't, I wasn't bitching about it. Like, you know, I, I liked it. I liked it a lot through the first half. And then, you know, there's just elements in the second half that are just little. Um, right. Again, it's, it's, it, it's small choices. Like the way that he films, honestly, it's the way he films like flashback scenes and like the, the whole red light thing. Like, I just feel, I feel if this movie would have been made 10 years later, or with a director with like a more like a less literal approach to filmmaking um you would have gotten a much stronger much more interesting like mystery out of it yeah. and honestly i think a lot of your third act problems disappear if they're not just like kind of spoon feeding you the story in a lot of ways like if they're like more like through visual whatever um effects and not even that just like i i think like showing him kind of fall apart without having to have people constantly talking about him falling apart would have been a more interesting um agreed like visual metaphor to like lead you to the end of this movie and even giving you some maybe some feeling that maybe he maybe he's crazy or he's not actually seeing this stuff because there's never any doubt about what's occurring yeah yeah which kind of like destroys like an element of mystery to it i feel like a lot of times in these 90 horror reviews like i'm kind of shitting on movies in like the five and four spot and i don't want you to think i don't like this movie i just think it could have been a lot better so that's it yeah all right all right so number two or sorry number four on your list Mm. is is ringu 2 um it is directed by the original director hideo nakata it stars miki nakatani hitomi sato and kyoko fukada it has a zero percent from critics on rotten tomatoes and a 51 percent from audiences um you want to tell us a little bit about this sequel and um uh how it ended up making the list Um, so an interesting point about this before we talk about like the, um, the general story is that the Ringu series is based on, um, a series of novels by a guy named, uh, Koji Suzuki. Um, and the original sequel to Ring, um, goes in a completely different direction in terms of like the way the virus is spread and just a lot of different like elements to it, it kind of makes it more of like almost like science fiction horror rather than um like ghostly horror horror <clears throat> but because simultaneous to the release of ring or ringu there's a movie called um R- rasen or race or something i don't know how you pronounce it um that is more in line with like the actual story from suzuki's books and was so poorly received that they were like, well, fuck it. We'll just make a sequel that's a direct sequel to Ringu and has nothing to do with the books. Um, so it's pretty interesting, like, for anyone, and I don't know who's ever read, like, those novels. Like, I'm a huge fan 
of the ring movies and i've never read the novels so um it's interesting that they would go in such a completely different direction <clears throat> um so it really takes place like almost immediately after uh the events of ringu um where um shit i'm not gonna know any of these people's names but the mother from the original movie has disappeared with her son nobody knows where she is um sadako's body has been <clears throat> whatever retrieved from the well and her uncle is summoned to identify it um and the research assistant of uh ryu from the first movie is also kind of like investigating what happened to him um and then it's just more ghostly goings on um you know a lot of things in the background and spirits in the distance and um uh Tak takahashi no that's not his name the little kid um is eventually found by the research assistant lady and he doesn't speak um after the events of basically like them sacrificing her father to save his life um because you know the in the first movie the the trick is that if you record um record the video and show it to someone else that you're passing the curse along and so sadako like leaves you alone um you were close it was takashi oh damn my bad the problem is that the kid in uh juan is also takashi the -hmm. little like coat ghost cat kid or whatever right sure um and there's so many takashis and tanahashis and right Oh yeah, yeah. and whatever like uh, oh no i was more impressed than anything it wasn't correct <laughs> like it was like i was i was i surprised you remembered something like that so anyway um in the end it's just you know you can't really beat the curse of sadako and blah 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 um i only really put this movie on the list because i wanted to make sure that we had some representation from uh asian horror here and honestly, like, for not being a super interesting movie, um, it's probably the best out of this year because we couldn't watch Shinkoku, um, which is what this replaced on this list because originally this was not on the list. Um, but you're coming into a really strong period in Japanese horror. And the fact that this movie, you know, was made so quickly to capitalize on the uh, success and popularity of the ring or Ringu um, and eventually um, led to a sequel in the United States or like a remake of this movie. Um, one of the things that I really like about this movie, though, that they sort of uh, stole for um, the American ring is the idea of the girl being in the mental institution and still being like, even though she survived, she's still a sort of like, what would you call it? Like pseudo infected. Mm-hmm. like she still has she she can't be around electronics like she still can call like sadako sort of and then there's the scene where they're walking her around with the um uh screen in front of her and she looks at the tv and she's kind of like drawing like the ring like the well into the tv like i really like that sequence a lot and it's actually probably my favorite sequence in the whole movie um, but again, it just kind of goes back to, 
the idea of um sort of the folklore aspect of it and more that it's like a curse rather than a virus which is the primary um selling point of like the novels even though i think they call it a virus <clears throat> that's it i don't know i honestly don't think this movie is particularly worth watching unless you're like a completist in the series and really ring zero which came after this is probably the more interesting movie which deals with sadako's childhood um yeah. and like the events leading up to her death like that's actually <clears throat> both visually and story-wise a more interesting um like view of that world but there's some decent ghost scenes in it it's still filmed like pretty well um yeah it's a lot more conventional i think is probably if there's a problem with it it's so much more conventional than the first movie is like where it relies a little bit more i think on like kind of like jump scares a little bit more than like the first one did where the first one built atmosphere um this becomes a lot more traditional than... and honestly yeah, there you go there's my review <laughs> um honestly not even that great of jump scares like right. yeah uh, even though even though Ringu is more artistic, I would say, um, I still feel like the scares in Ringu are more genuine and more like earned. Sure. Um, well, here's the thing: is the blooms off the rose with the story, right? So it's like, right. how how are you going to like recapture that when you know when when the first one's the idea is building up towards what's going on, and now you know what's going on, but now you have to go backwards to some degree. Yeah. And it's 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 a difficult position to be in um, overall. I think. The funny thing is that, um, so Sadako became like a cultural icon in Japan uh, to the point that um, there's a ring video game from Japan, um, but also that Sadako is referenced numerous times in like a lot of uh, media and video games. Um, the fighting game series Guilty Gear has a character that basically has Sadako like clinging to his back as he fights you oh. um so there's i mean it's <clears throat> it almost become a joke too because there's a movie from four or five years ago called um sadaku versus uh i think it's kadako is her name or whatever the woman from juan right um which is one of the most ridiculous movies if you ever want to waste like 90 minutes of your life um, and not worry about ever getting them back. Like you can certainly watch that movie. Um, but you know, this is Hideo Nakata trying to kind of recapture that success from the first movie. I don't know what the box office for this movie was or how successful. Um, thirty one point three million, it I guess, but it doesn't give a budget. But in ninety nine dollars, that actually seems pretty it was, high. It was the second film. highest grossing movie in Japan that year. I mean, um, I mean, look, first chance I had, I um, I bought it and watched it. Right. So, yeah, um, I I think the zero percent from critics, which is only like oddly like I think twelve critics or something like that, maybe like, I can't remember, but um, uh, it's completely unfair to this movie. Um. Right. Like the 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 I, I think more along the lines of the whatever it was fifty one percent um is is much more apt um for more. Sure. I mean, I I would give this movie like uh like a sixty five percent. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a solid 
I don't know. <clears throat> two and a half star movie, maybe. Yeah. 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 You're you're not gonna hate it. It's not terrible. Like it's definitely a watchable film. Um, if you're a fan of like Asian horror or you really are super into like the idea of like the Ringu movies or just want to see like where you know the American remakes came from, like it's 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 worth watching. Sure. And again, because it came before our our version of ring of the ring um they definitely like liberally steal things from ringu to mm-hmm. um for the american ring mm-hmm. and yeah. in all honesty like this is probably not a popular opinion with people that are like whatever like japanophiles or like purists but i really think our version of the ring is a, a really well-made movie it is um it's too it's too like blue and green like actually because i recently watched it like a few months ago when i watched the first when i watched ringu um the ring was free somewhere i'll always hate that shit like with the blue green shit around that time period but um no it's a good yeah. movie. it's a good movie it holds up i mean so let me ask you this question not to get too far off top yeah but let's say that that's the only movie that ever does that like that's just that movie's thing, and you never see it again. Does it really bother you as much then? Yes. I just don't like it as a like. Why? Like, I mean, people people are trying. So, like, Saul does green, right? Like, you know, it's like the the idea is like of the green, and it's like a yellowish green, right? Like. The idea of green is to make you nauseous, right? Like it's almost like a sickly, like pale over the over sure. the film, and the blue is to like add this air of like kind of like um, what gloominess, sadness, Cold. like coldness. Yeah, like I, and I just think it's real obvious, and I think it's like too obvious. Um, I can't think of a good analogy, but it just feels too too on point for me. And I don't like it. Like, I don't like it, like, I think in any movie that I've seen it used in. Um, it's just, like, too much of, like, this obvious visual stamp to, like, try to manipulate how you feel. So my, my, my for our listeners, like, edification, this has been <clears throat> an argument between the two of us for 20 plus years at this point. Yeah. Um, my counter to that is that throughout the history of color filmmaking, directors have used color filters in order to project different like visceral emotional reactions to different scenes sure even in black and white movies they used to use color filters to give different shades of I get <clears throat> coloration to like their so i don't know and i think that's just a i think it's a fine opinion for you to have it is um that i share it's it's so much more subtle when people do it like with filters a lot of times as opposed to like the obvious nature of like what they were doing in their early two thousands. That's a like it's <laughs> it's so obvious. Like like they're using filters in like some of my favorite movies, like The Shining and stuff like that. Like they're using Chinatown. filters. Chinatown, they're using filters. Like I mean, but do you notice the filters really? No. Well, at, no, at, but look, I mean, you, you look at a, a still 
from any of those movies, you don't notice the, the filter that they're using for the coloring. You put up any of the movies of the early 2000s, fucking Domino, fucking Saul, <laughs> fucking The Ring, you know, like you put up any of those things and it's like, you know, it's obvious, like the color choice that they're using for the filter. Fuck that. Like, it's just so. Okay, so Counterpoint, Gore Verbinski, ain't no Stanley Kubrick. Like, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I mean, isn't that what I'm saying? Well, what did I call Gore Verbinski the other day? I, do you remember that? Like, I couldn't remember his name, and I called him something ridiculous. Anyway, <laughs> excuse me. No, I don't remember that. But um, maybe I wasn't talking to you. Maybe I was talking to somebody else. But yeah, I literally cannot remember Gore. I was like that fucking pirates dude. Um, <laughs> and it was something something ridiculous. But ah, I do. Yeah, there was something pirates came up. All right, so let's, let's move go. on to a better. Yeah, movie. Like, yeah, a better movie, a more interesting movie. Um, one that I also hadn't seen or heard of um number three on your list is ravenous directed by is this our first female director frank um in the 90s for horror trying to think it's possible yeah i can't i can't think of anybody else um it's directed by antonia bird and it stars guy pierce robert carlisle jeremy davies jeffrey jones and john spencer um strong cast list there and it has a 49 percent from critics but a 78 percent from audiences um you want to tell us a little bit about this movie and uh why it's on the list uh so taking place in the um 1800s in the uh not really pacific northwest but like the sierra madre mountains um so what is that like colorado into california basically uh, um yeah or Sierra Nevada Mountains, not Sierra. Sierra, Mountains. Sierra, Sierra Nevada. Nevada, yeah, it's definitely Sierra. in California. Yeah, um, follows uh, Guy Pierce, um, who plays a um, lieutenant in the um, U.S. Army, who was given a captaincy because of his um, commandeering of a Mexican command post during the Mexican American War but is relegated to this podunk fort because the reason he was able to get behind enemy lines was that he played dead because he was so afraid of getting killed by the Mexicans. Um, so he's pretty much viewed with disgust um, by the other officers. Uh, again, you know, banished sort of to this fort. Uh, when he gets there, he finds kind of a ragtag crew. Um, they're led by uh, the... Jeffrey Jones is colonel or whatever rank he is. Um, there's also David Arquette, who's just this kind of like stoner who hangs out with the two <clears throat> Native American kind of guides that are there. Um, uh, what's his name? Uh, is that Neil 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 McDonough, the guy from Justified? Oh yeah, mm -hmm. who's this really high strung, like violence prone <clears throat> um, soldier? So, in the middle of the night, while they're there, uh, Robert Carlyle shows up, um, who claims to be the survivor of a um, expedition across the uh, Sierra Nevadas that ended in them getting stranded and lost and having to resort to cannibalism. Um, so, he presents himself as basically being like the only survivor of this this group and Jeffrey Jones says, well, you know, we need to go and investigate what happened. Um, Cause I guess it was like another army or another captain um, who was supposed to be coming out that way. 
Um, so they go to the cave. Robert Carlyle leads them there, and it turns out that everyone's dead and that they were like obviously cannibalized and murdered. Um, and that Robert Carlyle is really like a killer and a cannibal himself. Um, and not the victim of like circumstance, but someone who is actively murdering and cannibalizing his um uh his fellows or I don't know, whatever, the other people that were in the the party with him. Um, so he makes quick work pretty much of all of these people. Um and in order to save himself, Guy Pierce jumps off of a cliff um and ends up in a ridiculous fucking scene, like crashing through all these like tree branches and ending up next to the corpse of um Neil McDonough, uh who dies and then he um keeps himself alive by eating part of his body so the basic premise then is that the canadian mythology of the wendigo which is the um spirit that infects someone that feasts on the flesh of another man um is making these is keeping them alive like allowing um allows them to heal quickly from injury um, no one in camp believes Guy Pierce's story and they like tie him up. But then um, eventually, uh, what's his name? Uh, Robert Carlyle's character um, <laughs> murders everybody else. And it turns out that Jeffrey Jones is still alive. And they're trying to create this sort of like uh, outpost of cannibals where they can just have people that are moving to California. They can come through and they can kill them and eat them. Um but Guy Pierce kind of turns Jeffrey Jones and ends up killing him. Um, and then as the cavalry is like riding in, um, Guy Pierce and Guy Pierce ends up killing him, not succumbing to them, and they both die. Um, but then in the stringer, so uh, fucking um Robert Carlisle been making this stew out of people's bodies. And so the commander that comes into the post and is like, you know, basically like, what the fuck happened? Ends up eating the stew. So, you know, sort of giving the impression that the curse of the Wendigo is going to continue. Um, really well filmed movie. Uh, really beautifully shot, like in terms of the mountains and the woods and just um, that sort of like dirty uh, pre-industrial um, frontier, whatever. Uh, very similar in a lot of ways to The Revenant, like years and years later, 20 years later, most almost. Um, but just in the way that like she films um, the scenery and the backdrops. Um, I think Carlisle to me is one of my one of my favorite character actors from the 1990s. Mm-hmm. And I think generally like an underappreciated um, and super powerful performer. Uh, who can generate for being kind of like just normal and sort of friendly looking like can generate so much like menace from just a turn of phrase or the way he can contort his face or the way he moves his body um, does similar to similar effect as Begbie in a uh, train spotting um, guy Pierce who kind of fell off in the 2000s does a really good job here playing the conflicted and sort of weak-willed um soldier um jeffrey jones is fantastic in it david arquette is is good in a small role um neil mcdonough like one again another guy that just <clears throat> whenever you see him is just fantastic in the roles that he's he's given 
um really good is uh what's his character's name in justified um shit i can't remember that guy's name you're talking about the neil mcdonough character yeah um shit i can't remember i just remember they talk about quarrels Quarles, Robert, yeah, Rob, I Robert Quarles. Siberian husky shit, like because of his blue eyes and everything. Yeah, John Spencer in a small role, really good. I mean, it's just like, like you said, it's just this, the super strong cast of, um, you know, kind of sort of odd looking, like non traditional, like character actors from that time. But, um, I I love this movie when it came out, and it made absolutely no money in the theater. Like no one saw it. And everyone I watched it with hated it. So I never really talked to anybody about it after I saw it the first time. Um, and I kind of forgot about it too. But then when we were looking at this list, I was like, oh shit, like Ravenous. That's, um, I remember that being a pretty good movie. And I, I, I think I actually kind of enjoyed it more this time. Mm-hmm. Um, also notable, uh, this is one of um, Damon Alburn's first scores. Um, or like early in the time when he was like writing scores. Uh, do you know who Damon Albarn is the the guy no. from Blur? No. He's um the singer of Blur. Okay, I know or Blur, the but... guitarist or something. I don't know. He's one of those dudes. Um, but just like a it's it's a very traditional like jangly whatever. Um, but I think it really fits the movie well, and I like overall I think it's a pretty fantastic experience. Um, I really enjoyed. I guess yeah. critically, it was probably derided because um, it really does have a sort of like black sense of humor to it. And maybe for the subject matter being so vile, like it's kind of one of those things where it's, it, I guess it could be off putting, but I mean, I think it can't be like, it couldn't be like completely dark or whatever or else it would just be like a slog to get through almost. Um, I think it has to have like that little sense of, yeah, so I I, Black I I haven't been doing this much, but I did grab a review from um uh someone we haven't ever heard from before, Edward Gunthman, uh, from the San Francisco Chronicle. Um, he says in concept alone, Ravenous is anything but appetizing, but in execution, it's worse than you'd imagine. What writer Ted Griffin and director Antonia Bird attempt here is an action horror comedy. But those elements were so poorly balanced, the result is so pointless and disgusting that you have to wonder why 20th Century Fox chose to put its name on it. Bird reportedly was a last-minute replacement, and granted, inherited a troubled production, but instead of leaving her stamp on it or turning it into a dark parable about the strong exploiting the weak, she flails about. The movie lacks rhythm, takes forever to establish a tone and purpose, and can't decide whether its focus is Pierce or the gluttonous Carlisle. Bird goes for the broadest effects, ladling out gore instead of suggesting it, stretching fight and chase sequences to absurd lengths, bumping off characters before we had a chance to get to know them. Carlisle plays the hungry psychopath with all the savagery the world requires, but little of the subtlety that might have made him interesting. Um, that's like it's a, like a lot of things to throw at you at once um, in terms of criticisms, but it's a very good encapsulation of what I was seeing from critics overall which is why I grabbed his. Um, how do you feel about, like, uh, let me just kind of go a couple points here. Like, the tone first. Like, like the idea that it's, like, tonally, like, imbalanced or, like, can't find its own voice or tone. I don't agree with that. Um, I mean, I think 
I think the tone is so the basic premise of the movie is you're capturing this man who's like stuck in this cycle of despair because of the horror of war and his kind of like loss of faith in humanity in a lot of ways and no one will leave him alone like he keeps getting beset by these like terrible things and when he tries to sort of get someone to help him like combat these terrible things like no one believes him um and ultimately you know his his sacrifice is what should have like saved everyone you know from the curse of this thing except that's the twist at the end is that you know this dude like just randomly eating the soup is gonna cause it to continue but i think it maintains that to him pretty well you know like yeah it, it it feels fractured isn't the right word, but it feels um ah, I can't think of a good adjective to describe it. Like right on the verge of being just like crazy, but I think it's it's supposed to. Yeah. Like you're supposed to feel that way because Well, Guy Pierce is feeling that way. Right, like you're supposed to feel the way that he feels as the protagonist of this movie. Right, and I think I think he's a really interesting protagonist because he's not like put together or confident in himself. Like he really mm-hmm. is just this guy who's forced into heroism by circumstance, you know, and he doesn't yeah. want to be. Just sure. wants to have somebody else take care of it but he can't and even when he brings himself to shoot the guy and the guy doesn't die it's like right you know yeah like the ultimate fuck you to this guy who's trying not to kill anybody anyway so yeah, sure. i disagree with that yeah um yeah i i thought it was pretty obvious that it's like look we're when we talk about the number one movie on this list like we're we're going to get into this idea again of like the psycho idea where it's like you, you almost think it's one thing and it's something completely different and like I, I felt that's what this movie was is that like it basically starts taking you on this journey that you think is kind of one thing and then suddenly it's not and it goes off the fucking rails and it puts you to me it puts you in the yeah the mindset of the guy pierce character and um you end up in this like really like kind of like horrific place um and horrific choices that you have to make um I don't know. Yeah, I, I I don't really get that. And um, I thought Carlisle was. I, I thought all everybody in this is great. Um, yeah, like I mean, it's one of the best tropes in horror: the idea that like you and the protagonist are the only people that know that the bad guy is the bad guy. Uh-huh. And that I always think that's kind of an effective way to sell like horror. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um. I can't really like I, I feel like an idiot because I can't think of like another good example of that but like, I again like I think Robert Carlyle is amazing in this movie mm-hmm. and I think the the realization that he's just fucking with them like outside the cave um because at first he's sort of playing it off like he's nervous being back there uh-huh. but then it's like he's almost trying to like bait them into making mistakes by being crazy mm-hmm. which is exactly what he's doing I mean I think that's I don't know yeah, I, I mean, I, I think um, I think Guy Pierce is really good in this too. Like, I mean, because the, this, so what? Guy Pierce's most famous role, I would say, is L.A. Confidential, right? Probably like the thing he's most yeah, that's probably for. true. 
So it's like yeah. this 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 character is really not that far in some ways from Ed Axley in that movie of the guy who like at least in the second half of LA Confidential of the guy who has been embarrassed in some way who is like unconfident um who questions himself because he has done something and one made a mistake and here has done something cowardly um He's obviously affected by PTSD, I think, in this movie, Um, uh, you know, more so than the Ed Axley character. But I mean, I think there's a lot of nuance that's going on there, just comparing those two roles. Um, Guy Pierce is doing a lot of really interesting things like throughout this movie. Um, So, yeah, I think Carlisle like dominates like everything that he's in in this movie. But I think Guy Pierce holds his own. throughout it and the supporting cast is so good i mean i know jeffrey jones had you know some really troublesome stuff that's happened in like the past like you know five years but he's a guy that like is always solid in everything he does um whether he's being a prick or whether he's being affable um that guy like sells everything so well and um you know uh, again and then like john spencer like you know in, in the roles that he's in like playing that um you know that character like you know he's he's always solid as well um this is before jeremy davies like really like became that <laughs> all right i forgot to talk about him right um this is before he like kind of like blew up like in the mid 2000s to you know like uh early 2010s again in these like small character roles um but he just like nails but um you know he he's he's good in this and then yeah i forgot to put neil mcdonough like um on there but yeah he's he's really good as well it's just a really solid cast it's well filmed um you know how i am like i can like watch it on my ipad and like follow along with it and kind of like tune out and do other shit at the same time i watched this movie all the way through because i was i was captivated and like because i didn't know where the hell it was going like i was like yeah um and yeah i watched all the way through and i was uh extremely surprised excellent actor acting different like interesting locale and time period um especially for a horror movie and yeah it was a really enjoyable experience overall yeah i'm glad you enjoyed it yeah um probably probably watching or re-watching movies here probably because i hadn't seen it before most enjoyable movie on this list to me enjoyable not best but enjoyable um movie on this list to me um all right you ready to move on to number two then do it all right frank so number two on your list is the blair witch project is directed by daniel myrick and eduardo sanchez the stars heather donahue michael c williams joshua leonard has an 86% on Rotten Tomatoes and a, from critics and a 56% from audiences. Um, just surprised us not lower, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah, we'll get into that. But um, just so everybody knows, we're also joined for this particular movie um, by friends of the podcast um, and our podcast companions um, on the best 30 minutes, uh, Michael Bletso and Orion Wallmaker. Uh, thanks for joining us tonight. What's up? Be here. What's up? Thanks for Welcome, having. gentlemen. Yep. So, um, Frank, uh, I don't know how much of a synopsis you really need to give of this, considering the popularity of this movie. But I guess you should at least say something about it from in terms of summary, and right. then, um, and then, um, 
just kind of start us off, like, and what your thoughts were, I guess, maybe then and now. I think that's probably the core of this. Right. So in broad strokes, it's about um, three amateur filmmakers who are going into the Black Hills of Burkittsville, Maryland, to do a documentary on a local urban legend about um, this woman called the Blair Witch, who supposedly would steal children away and still haunts the woods. Um, so um, pretty much the first like true found footage horror movie of the modern era, um, and especially because it's told solely in the style of the first person narrative of the people like filming this documentary um the three of them get lost in the woods they encounter some increasingly um possibly odd um occurrences like things they find in the woods um one of them disappears at one point um and then finally the two are left like fleeing through the woods from um some unseen and unknown like force where they end up at this house uh that's alluded to early in the movie as being the home of this guy who was a serial killer um and it ends on a an undefined i guess ending where maybe they're dead maybe they're not um and that's it pretty much um so like the the phenomena of the Blair Witch Project in 1999 was kind of predicated by um, some really ingenious viral marketing. Uh, so the producers created a website, which was basically like what happened to Heather Donahue, um, Heather, Mike, and um, Josh, um, where they framed it as a real disappearance by these three people because um, they were all unknown actors. Like they were all, this is their first roles for all of them. Um, so over the course of a year, they would update this website with like, oh, we found these facts or here's an interview with like Heather's sister or here's some press release from the police of Burkittsville about the continuing search in the woods. And then it was like, oh, they found this footage like buried in this cabin under years of like debris, but it's these tapes and, you know, assembling the tapes. And so it all built up to <clears throat> a week before the movie premiered the sci-fi channel showed um, a mockumentary called uh, the curse of the Blair witch, which was all of this footage of um, like sit down interviews and uh, supposed local historians and urban legend experts, like talking about this myth um, to the point where they really built it up. Like where a lot of people believe that this was a real thing. Um, Burkesville is a real town in Maryland and um, they would get, just inundated with uh, tourists and ghost hunters and people would steal like the sign to their town and um, just go up in the woods and like to the like deer hunting season apparently got canceled in 2000 because so many people like wouldn't stay out of the woods that like nobody could go in there and hunt. They ended up having to tear that house down too. Didn't they? Yeah. Yeah. Um, they tried to get it saved as a historical site. Um, but the state of Maryland just like, um subtly tore it down i guess like at some point um at con uh the uh, minick and uh, sanchez put up like missing posters for all the actors and the actors weren't allowed really to do any press or be seen in public for a year um until after the movie premiered and then they could go out and do um whatever press and whatnot but they did this amazing job of creating this whole mythology around um that culminated with seeing this movie 
so by the time if you were invested in like the viral aspect of it and you know you'd watch the sci-fi show <clears throat> there's a lot of backstory that comes with watching this movie like kind of like a richer i don't know like under tapestry maybe to your experience with watching it instead of just like this kind of like weird relic that it is today um of what is it like 80 minutes long something like that yeah it's like yeah. um <clears throat> hour, hour and 20, 20 minutes. minutes yeah um of these people these like kind of whiny um you know 90s like early 20s 20 somethings like wandering around in the woods um and a lot of the stuff too so some of the more like impressive things about it was they were legitimately lost in the woods a lot of the time like the actors like all the film is shot by those three um and they would they had a gps that you never see on camera but that would lead them to dead drops basically where their supplies were for the night and then they would be forced to set up camp and sleep outside and um basically over the over the course of eight days they spent filming this movie out in the woods um and they wouldn't know a lot of the things they were going to find so the there's a scene in the movie where they're all in the tent and the tent gets shaken outside by a bunch of like hands you see like handprints in the tent um they had no idea that was going to happen so like the fear that you see there and the confusion is all genuine um there's a scene after that where they're running out of the tent and one of the um cast members who was wearing this like costume that was like a, a white stocking over their head and a bunch of like gauzy white clothes and was like running on the path beside them um but <laughs> josh who's like filming at the time never turns the camera to the left so like, you never see that on film but you hear like their reactions like their screams because this thing is just like coming out of the woods out yeah because you hear heather i think say like what the hell is that or something and like, she says what the yeah. fuck is that what is the, yeah okay yeah but the fuck is said in this movie, I think like 137 times. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, pretty, pretty omnipresent. But um, like Heather and Josh were originally supposed to have this romantic interest in each other and they hated each other. So a lot of the animosity you see towards her is real um, because they didn't like her. Um, the part in the movie where Mike reveals that he kicked the map into the river, like that was real, like their anger towards him because he was told by the producers to do it and not tell anybody like destroy the map so he had basically done it early in the day and held that knowledge all day while they were like angry at each other looking for like where this map was so a lot of stuff that when you look at it in the context of just almost like guerrilla filmmaking it's pretty amazing that they were able to accomplish what they did for very little money and people with like no real acting experience um so watching it today like it's it's weird like i enjoyed it a lot more than i thought i would watching it again this time um but still like you'll never replicate that experience i think of you know when i first saw it back in 99 like in the theater on opening night so now i didn't know any of that any of that stuff about until last night you like told me um and um yeah, I mean, it's like, I, I think I equated it to, like, almost doing, like, an alternate reality game with, like, three people and make them film it. Like, and, I mean, that's pretty ingenious. Like, I think. Like, I didn't know any of that, and I think that's, a, for 19, for 20-plus years ago, that's really damn clever of those directors yeah. to, like, do that. I mean... And it's kind, of, it's kind of lost today when you watch it, because you can't go back and not know that it's all fake. But sure. back then, they did this amazing job. I mean, like, this is so like kind blurring, of like the, blurring the lines, yeah. Right. And it's the early days of the internet. So when you're going on the websites, like 
you're a lot more credulous, I think, to things that you're reading on the internet at that point. Um, so seeing the stuff that looks like real news articles and looks like real interviews with people, like even though you know it's a hor- like a, a horror movie, it still kind of gives you that kind of creepy feeling that it might not be really. So, right. And that's been attempted to be replicated like a number of times. But one of the funny things is, um, this is the last thing that I'll turn it over to let Mike and uh, Orion talk. But, um, so they tried to shop this movie at I can't remember what studio it was, but one of the major studios. And Jason Blum was the executive producer for that studio. Mm-hmm. And he turned it down huh. um, and then went on to create the Paranormal Activity franchise and completely, like, rip off the entire idea of the found footage. Not, not that those movies are terrible, but still, it's funny that he didn't see any merit to this. And it made, at the time, like, for three years until my Big Fat Creek wedding, um, was the most successful independent movie of all time in terms of, like, cost ratio to revenue. Um, it was something like 200%. Um more money it made than it costs to make um so yeah yeah i i I think that's interesting i i think i know too much about jason blum um i I wish i knew less but um i wonder if like that experience of turning it down influenced him though um because he does like take like that chance on paranormal activity like when it's like such a low budget and like his business practices is something that's like i think pretty admirable overall like in terms of you know taking chances on really low budget movies for distribution but also like making sure that directors have final cut that you know that he basically wants to like give people enough money to make their movie like like 10 million um or less but like you know um but then pay them on the back end Like, you know, and it's like, I wonder if like that, like kind of like indie style filmmaking and taking a pass on that ended up influencing his career in some way in terms of some of the business practices that he ended up following. I would love to hear that question asked other like how he feels about passing on Blair Witch. But you got to give the man credit because I think in a lot of ways, um, he's more or less responsible for your like modern boom in horror movies. Sure. Mm. Sure. Him and him and A24, I think they're. Mm -hmm like equal credit to kind of steering horror through the dark days between like the late nineties and the early 2010s um, and kind of like bringing it back to the prominence of a profitable, um, desirable genre for people to film movies in, which. Yeah. Okay, Blum is something I have a lot of respect for. Yeah. Just like watching interviews with him and stuff, despite like being a shyster and not wearing socks ever, like um, with his loafers. But um, uh, I, I, I do respect him for what he does a lot. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, like, I, I think I have the same feeling as you. I don't know how you can't like, you know, from the first time you see it to now. Um, like, I don't know how anybody can, but um. So, yeah, I want to bring our guests into this, like, um, because they have different perspectives, I think. Um, Mike, you saw this really early on, right? And just to clarify, like, pretty early on after it was released? Uh, Yeah, my my earliest memory of this is Frank telling me about it. And because I think Frank was marking out pretty hard to the the viral (laughs) marketing at the time. Definitely. And I I remember him telling me, like, oh, yeah, look, there's this new there's this movie coming out it's called Blair Witch and he was he was like telling me all the story about these three (laughs) these three people and like oh it's this legend about this witch and everything and 
<clears throat> I thought it was interesting because I was reading a little bit about it, about it, but the the legend is totally fabricated for the film. Sure. And I was kind of hoping that it wasn't. I was kind of hoping that mm-hmm. it actually was a local legend in Burkittsville or wherever. But um, yeah, I mean, that's my my earliest memory of it is that is hearing about it from Frank and getting getting excited about it. And uh, I I don't know if I went to the like on premiere night, but it feels like I was it was very it was either the premiere or shortly after that I saw it. And uh, and I loved it at the time, I think. Do you know if we want to go together to see it? I think we probably did. Yeah. I don't I don't remember. I don't yeah. remember actually like I don't remember that night, but I think we probably yeah. did. Okay. Um because I don't Yeah, remember. I really liked it at the time and mm-hmm. and um this was my second watch. I hadn't watched it <laughs> since then. So uh yeah, it was a lot more difficult to watch this time. Um I thought it was hilarious that Amazon had a 4K version. I <laughs> <laughs> get that extra green. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um and so like that was actually the worst like, rewatching it. I found it really difficult to deal with the, some of the graininess of it. And um like the the part where they find the bundle of sticks or when when uh, heather finds the bundle of sticks and she takes it out and there's body parts inside right um it it looks like a tongue like that's that's all i can make out and i think it is supposed to be a tongue it's uh it's teeth and like other stuff like there might be a finger in there or something but (laughs) but you can't you can't even make out what's in there it's just like a pink blob yeah reddish that was my feeling this time too and i was disappointed with that i understand that that's kind of it's kind of the point of it is that you you can't see all the detail all the fine details but at the same time i i wanted to have some idea what was going on (laughs) and uh um the thing that i this this is kind of sick but the thing that i enjoyed the most about it was the the breakdown of their relationship and how they started arguing with each other and how much they uh, bickered as they were getting lost. I really thought that was the most interesting part about it was watching their behavior and watching them bicker with each other. Yeah. Agreed. So it's interesting that you say that because what they would do is they would leave them food, water, and, um, the tent to put together like they're not carrying the tent the entire movie the producers have the tent and are just like leaving into these random spots but they would leave them less food every day so that not only were they like having to walk for like eight to ten hours a day but then they were having less to eat so the breakdown is like kind of forced by the producers like putting them in the super uncomfortable situation and them getting like really tested with each other and the fact that they just didn't like each other yeah, I, I agree. I think when I was younger, I thought, but Mike, that like, it's like I wanted to see what the next like thing was with the supernatural element or whatever was going on in the movie. I was much more focused on that. And it's like, yeah, I think like the psychological breakdown of like that group dynamic over time, now that I'm older, is much more interesting to me than 
the fake witch shit. <laughs> yeah, the different events, like the different supernatural events that would happen, they were all interchangeable to me. It didn't really matter. I mean, it looked it seemed like they were trying to escalate it every night, but it just it didn't <clears throat> it just didn't have much of an impact on me. Mm-hmm. It was just like, okay, I know something's gonna happen tonight. Okay, what is it? All right, you know. I thought it was hilarious when when Heather shouted out, What the fuck is that? <laughs> As they're running <clears throat> running away from the tent. Um but yeah, I agree. I agree. The the interpersonal relationships were way more interesting. Yeah. And now that I know all that stuff from Frank, like about like how this was filmed and like what the directors did, makes a lot more sense to me because I was like, I was like, this is actually pretty impressive performances for actors that like aren't well known. And it's because I guess some of it is like genuine reactions. Um makes a lot more yeah. sense. And I hadn't heard any of that stuff either yeah. before Frank just explained it. So do you guys know, um, and not to keep you from talking to Ryan, but uh, one of the original ideas was that the two fishermen that they meet early in the film were going to be the antagonists of the movie, and they were just, like, fucking with them the whole time. Like, that was the end result. Um, And then on the other end of that, they had considered having, how you have, like, the stick men that are made of, like, the moss and sticks tied together. Um, having a giant stick man chasing him through the woods at one point, which would have been pretty hilarious, I think. So, <laughs> I'm I mean, glad this didn't happen. Yeah, right. Can I can I comment on those two get those two fishermen real quick? <laughs> so, or no, no, it wasn't them. It was the it was the older guy that they talked to in town, and he tells the story of Rustin Parr. Yep, and how Rustin Parr kidnapped these kids and killed them and everything, and. I th- so I just wanted to ask you what your reaction was to that part of the movie because I felt like I felt like okay are they telling a different story here is this related to the Blair Witch and I kind of got the idea that like maybe the Blair Witch was involved maybe this is some sort of like adjacent some sort of adjacent story that's related to it but they never connected it in the film and I felt like it just muddied up the whole story and yeah. it was confusing. So Frank can tell you about that 45 minute thing I, he was talking about. Like he can tell you more about yeah, it yeah. But not here. Well, but I read, like, yeah. I read, like I looked up Rustin Parr and I read the, the, the backstory to it that he was being directed by the Blair Witch mm-hmm. and everything. But with that being left out of the film, unless I missed it, but. Oh no, it, it's not left out of the film it was just like okay you just you told me another creepy story but i don't i don't get how these things are related like and who's who well, are they who's messing with them in the woods is it rustin parr or is it no the it's blair the blair witch? witch well who knows but like the thing is is that so they do say it in the movie they're going to hike to rustin parr's house because like the remains of the house which is that's where she keeps telling them they're going to hike to there's a a cemetery in the woods that they're supposed to hit. And then after that is Rustin Parr's house. And that's the whole thing is like, they never get close to it. But the end of the movie, when like they go into that house, that's Rustin Parr's house. Yeah. That's what I figured. Yeah. That's where he kills the kids. And that's where like, he's like making the kids, like one of them look in the corner and you right. know, all that kind of stuff. Like, but the, the problem with that blood. So that was my point in the beginning is that like, there was a year's worth of viral marketing about that. And then a whole special about that. And then you took that knowledge and went into the movie. So you were making those connections like in the movie because you had 
whatever, like 12 months worth of backstory in your brain about this thing. Whereas when you watch it today, you have none of that unless you're a fucking loser like I am that just retains <laughs> all that fucking information. But um, yeah, so I get like it's completely accurate. Yeah, like and, why, I, and I and I and I, and I watched it just last night. I um I don't know the most how recently you watched it, Frank, but it's like yeah, Frank. It's like it's all about Rustin Parr. Like that entire forty-five minute sci-fi channel thing is all about Rustin Parr. Um, and Frank, you were telling me that the initial cut of this was two and a half hours or something like that. Yeah, it was about double what it um ends up being. But that's because they incorporated all that, right? So that forty-five minute special was cut into it like it was a documentary basically so there was a beginning there was voiceover narration there was interview with the family members and local historians and all of that was cut into this um total movie and in the end they decided that it was more powerful just having the footage from the kids tell the whole story and then letting you make those like assumptions yourself or seek the information out through like the website and the other sources i mean they published books and shit like before this movie came out, I think I have a couple actually somewhere. Maybe I was obsessed with the Blair Witch Project. Hmm. <laughs> I well, I mean that, that's bit. the that's the first time that ever happens, though. I mean that's like one of the magic things about this movie is you don't have that kind of viral marketing until this, right? Yes. Right. I mean, I can't think of anything like so much was, has come afterwards. When 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 was Marble Hornets? No, so, that, so do you nah. remember that? Is that like early 2000s? That's early 2000s, yeah. Um, so that's the only other thing I can think of around that same time that was similar, like the, the early, early Slender Man stuff. Yeah, Mar- yeah. Marvel the, Hornets. That and that's not even. I only think it's early 2000s. I think it's like 2008, 2009, Mid- or something like that. Uh, I'm pretty sure I was still working at the movie theater and knew about that. So I'd say probably like 05, maybe. But anyway, it doesn't matter. It, it's yeah. it's after. Yeah, but I mean. Cloverfield had viral marketing too, right? Um, sort of. Yeah, I mean, only in the sense of trying to get you hyped to see this monster. Sure, sure, but it had some elements of viral marketing to it. Um, I don't it's, think anybody, I, mean, like, I don't think anybody wants hard as Blair Witch, like you know, building a year with websites yeah. and all that kind of stuff, but. Well, they ruined it for everybody too because after that, people were always looking for the the gimmick and everything. Yeah. Um. Whereas then it was more, I don't know, innocent, I guess, and so. Sure. Sure. Like it, it was more earned. Yeah, that makes sense. So, Orion, um, you have a different experience from I think us. You you didn't see Blair Witch until years after it premiered, right? Yeah, around two thousand six was when I okay. saw it. Uh huh. Um, and what did you think of it at that time, given it's like six or seven years after like the movies like become popular? Well, when I saw it in 2006, I knew that because when it when it came out in 99, I knew that it was really I knew that it was hyped up and a lot of people were talking about it. But at the same time, I looked up the when this movie came out and it was it was July 30th of 99. And that was two months after I started playing EverQuest. So I didn't do, I didn't see anybody for like a year and a half. I watched TV for like a year and a half. That was over. I didn't see any movies, a year and a half, nothing. So I kind of just like didn't think twice about it after there was some hype going on. Like maybe I, because I was going to college, maybe I saw, I heard people talking about it there and things like that. 
but I didn't even watch TV during that whole time. That was a year and a half. And so I saw it in 2006 without anything Frank was talking about. I didn't, I don't think I knew anything about them hyping it up on a website or any kind of marketing thing like that. So our friends on the podcast, uh, Jason Heaster, in 2006, I started watching movies again and I would go over his house and borrow like 10 movies at a time. And I remember asking him like, oh, the Blair Witch, should I watch that? And he's like, oh yeah. So I watched the Blair Witch and when I watched it then, I remember liking it. And I remember not liking the ending. I thought the ending was really lean. And I mean, that happens with a lot of movies, but that's the main things that I remember. And so I just watched this movie yesterday for the first time since then. And I watched it with better, like in better situ- a better situation than back then. Cause back then I probably just had some crappy TV CRT, but this time I watched it like, I mean, not like, like it was funny when Bledsoe said like Amazon had like a, a 4k version because i i have a i have a 1080p version and i'm like well there's no uh 1080p at all going on here so i I watched it in 1080p (laughs) Uh, that's kind of a joke but i watched it but i watched it with my headphones on so i could hear a lot more like ambient noise and sounds and stuff so i was like really and i watched it in the garage with the lights off and everything so i was like really i was like really really focused on what was going on that setup Oh yeah, that's was... that's actually a nice setup. I, I, <laughs> Fantastic I think watching setup. it with headphones is a good idea because so you can hear that screaming more. <sighs> okay, so I hated the screaming. The screaming really got to me. But yeah, I want to talk about that soon. I recently got this nice sound bar for my for my TV, and it has a dedicated center channel. And the reason I got a dedicated center channel was that so that the dialogue would be more pronounced and it would be a better mix between the sound effects and the dialogue. And it might've been the sound bar or it might've just been the way the thing is mixed, but it was just constant screaming the whole time. Um, maybe, maybe your lack of audio fidelity saved you. From <laughs> I, was, I watched it on my porch this time in the dark, like at night. Um, you had crazy straight, Blair Witch straight situation. through, yeah, right. Um, I set up too. Um, watching on, on an iPad, iPad or something. Though. Yeah, oh, okay, I said yeah. so the audio is not. <clears throat> so the reason why I said the the headphones might be a good idea is because the other problem with the audio is that you would, the the screams and all the stuff that was going on outside the tent was so faint. Um, mm. And I don't know if that was intentional, but you would hear Josh off in the distance, like. Oh. Yeah. It would be really quiet, and then, and then immediately after that, it would be like full blown screaming. Um, and I wish that I could hear more of that ambient noise or more of the, more of the stuff that's happening outside the tent. I just I don't know. Right. Maybe that might sound better with headphones. I think part of that is not watching it in a theater, because when you have the um, the eight channel sound like in the theater, like around you, um, you can hear more of that stuff. Like yeah, as it moves, sense. like you'd be able to hear like the voices, like move from like one speaker to another, basically. Yeah, my sound like, isn't all that. 
like i i never heard the kids laughing watching it this time and when i saw it in the theater that shit was super pronounced hmm. like you could really hear like the laughter of the kids like outside and um yeah so it does take something away i guess i could um, you... i could hear the kids laughing when i was listening to it. i listen i was gonna say i use i use headphones for everything when i watch every movie i would use headphones even when i'm listening to people stream video games i'm using headphones i get I like to hear I like to hear everything because I get really absorbed when I watch movies and I want to hear like any kind of sound that's ever going on anywhere because everything just kind of adds to the movie. Like and I do a lot of editing for my YouTube thing. And so like I'm, I always have crazy stuff in the background that I think people that do not have headphones probably can't really hear like what I've put back there. There's like weird noises and stuff like uh, and I yeah, the headphones really add a lot. So I, I watch every movie ever with headphones. So I always wondered why you were so insistent in your videos that that uh, headphones were recommended. Yeah, not not all of them, but some of the ones that, especially when there's a lot of ambience or David Lynch stuff going on, I'm like, put some headphones on because there's like, there's this creepy noise over here and it'll make things more, make more sense. At least it does to me. I don't know. No, I totally understand. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let me let me continue where I was at. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I watched it in the dark with my headphones this time, instead of just probably on some crappy TV speakers in 2006 or whatever. And so when I was first watching this movie, the thought I thought the pacing was really well done. Like I was like, like it seemed to just like flow really well. And the part that was the creepiest to me and is the same as I, when I watched this time was, was the creep was the creepy town people. Cause there was the fisherman with his big glasses. He looked like Bob Lazar. If you know who that guy is from the eighties, that said he works at area 51. Yep. Like he looked like Bob Lazar. And then there was the crazy, they said there was the crazy lady that had new teeth and she was coming out and talking to them about whatever. And um, all the townspeople seemed really legit. Like yeah. it was uh like none of them seem to just be bad actors or anything. Not to not to interrupt you, but the one that sticks out to me actually out of all of them is the woman that's holding her kid. Yeah, me too. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Like like the, the idea that the kid. I don't know if the kid was told to do this or not. I have no idea. Maybe you know this, Frank. But it's like yeah, I can tell the, you the story about this. The, <laughs> the fact that the kid is like sitting there, like sitting there, like saying like no, and like trying to put its hand to the mother's mouth from oh, like yeah. telling the story like adds so much to that woman's scene and then like even like the whole thing where it's like oh no it's just a scary story like I, mommy's just telling a scary story it's like no it's real like you know it's like oh, it's, yeah. it's, it's funny and it's also like so human and real to me like i that little segment i just love but frank you said you know the story behind this yeah so it's actually um it's actually a really cool story so most of the actors in that segment are paid Mm-hmm. Um, the old man with the glasses, uh, the woman in the trailer, um, the chick in the uh, cafe, whatever. They're all like paid actors. This woman was a random stranger they found on the street and told her nothing of what they were filming and just huh. asked her the question. And she made all that stuff up up on the spot. Huh. And then they could never find her afterwards to get her to sign like um, well, a consent to film. So they just put her in it. Huh. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like that's all just shit that she made up. Like that's, room, that's like fucking amazing, man. <laughs> yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, so the guy, I'm... the guy with the glasses, the one that tells the Rustin Parr story, 
that was actually filmed after the movie was wrapped um to add context um to the rustin par thing like within the narrative of the the movie Mm -hmm. um so that happened long after interesting Mm -hmm. so sorry ryan yeah but yeah like um so the the opening stuff yeah right yeah everything yeah everything seemed just like it was completely real going into it and i i do appreciate that this was the first movie that did this and uh like a lot of similar things like came after this and like the weird thing about when you all are talking about the yelling and stuff and so when i'm i'm doing my videos i try to make the audio level like similar like if there's this there's something where i'm really loud i have to go in and like make those loud words like not as loud like to like even with the rest of it but in this but when you're watching this movie and they're in the woods they don't they don't mix any of the audio at all so sometimes things are quiet and then all of a sudden they're like really yelling in the next scene and it makes it seem like that much more authentic because you know it's not really none of the audio or clips are really changed at all it's like exactly it's, like it's, it raw, been. it's raw footage at that point right yeah. Like, yeah yeah it just all that yelling like made it really yeah. really more authentic and the actors are really believable and um <clears throat> So what you said, Bledsoe, about how you like tell there was all this drama with the characters, like that was like my least favorite part because I I hate all kinds of drama and stuff like that. Like I hate like reality TV. I don't know what kind of reality TV was going on in the '90s like this, but they like were fitting all kinds of reality TV situations in here. Like oh, I lost the map. I gotta go to work at nine o'clock in the morning. Like I'm gonna be <laughs> all this stuff. And it's like oh my god. Like what's the next? Um, I I mean it was it was fine, but I was like, oh, what's what's the next dramatic situation that's going to happen? And I remember them going through the woods and they're in the same spot again. And um, yeah, I checked the time at like around fifty minutes because I was it stopped being like a Blair Witch movie to me and just it felt like a Lost in the Woods movie. Like I was kind of I wasn't I was kind of done with the Blair Witch stuff because I wanted more. I wanted more Blair Witch, not like them just bickering and arguing about being lost in the woods, if that makes sense. But I mean, I knew that that creates the the tension and stuff. But I did hear the shaking in the woods scene. That was the scariest scene when I saw it before, besides the scary townspeople. And this time I did hear like there was the uh, there were some kids laughing in the woods. I could hear all that stuff, like right outside the tent and whatever. And uh, when Frank said that that whatever that guy was supposed to pan over and see the person chasing him like in dressed in white, I think that uh that's that would that would have been pretty awesome. I'm kind of disappointed like 22 years later that that didn't happen. I guess. So they thought about going back and refilming it, but they didn't think they could ever recapture that exact moment and the tension and stuff. So they just let it be. Mm. Yeah, I mean, her saying, like, what the fuck is that? I mean, that's, I mean, that's, the tension was there. You could just hear it in their voice anyway, I guess. Um, What else do I have on my notes? I'll be I honest. That, <laughs> like, I think if, I, th- I think I prefer not seeing it. Yeah, I think the not seeing it made it better. Yeah. I it's think like, a brief glimpse would have been, 
I don't know. I, I like that shit in the background element of movies. I, I, I do too, but it depends on how brief it was, right? You know, I mean, like, I have to see it to know, like, whether I would like it, but if I, if it's going to be the full figure, like, in some way, like, being, like, moved over and you're going to see that full figure of the dude in the fucking stocking or whatever, like, you know, I mean, it depends on how it's done, you know, and it's, it depends on how brief it is and how they cut it, but, like, I think there's some aspect of it, like never knowing about this movie. I think that's what I like about it is like never knowing about any right. of it to some degree. Like, and and that again, that was why they removed like almost all like external narrative and just left it with them filming. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Ryan. Go. And oh, one of my movie pet peeves is when, like, at the end of like some kind of scary movie. You, You'll see like the the bed, the monster, or the witcher, something who knows whatever it is, like all like coming up at you, and it's like oh, like oh, you finally saw the the monster of the whatevers, and like that always ruins it. So if the Blair Witch would have had to have just been a faraway shot and not anything up close, in my opinion, if they shoot anything like that. Um, I said a couple more things. I think Mike, he was like a he was a dick and was like the least likable character and they like turned into like the voice of reason like oh it's okay we're gonna get through this that's some cool character development i guess and then the ending i still didn't like it i wanted like a blair witch ending but we got what Bledsoe said like the other story with the serial killer is like well what happened to the the blair witch like didn't really wasn't the one that like kind of concluded the movie or whatever so the movie the ending back then was kind of lot to me in the same way so one it. one of the theories because there's so many theories about like the ending of this movie that some of them are stupid and some of them are like interesting one of the theories is that josh was actually like just like the rustin parr character josh ended up possessed by the blair witch hmm. and josh yelling is actually him leading them to that house so that he can attack them Mm. um and that like josh is actually the one that's like attacking like mike and heather in that house being possessed by the blair witch just like the previous serial killer was um that's one of the theories um anyway of like what's going on in that movie that josh didn't die or wasn't killed that he was possessed um and is basically ripping i guess his own teeth out at that point and shit like that um Mm. um through possession like um so so that's one of the theories. Um, there's other theories out there, which I don't know if you've heard of. I've watched tons of videos on this like over the years, but um, there's theories that none of it's real, like the Blair Witch is fake, Rustin Parr, whatever, was just a, some crazy serial killer of kids. Um, and that Josh and Mike are basically like in on it to like fuck over Heather um, and like end up like like leading her off like like and 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 if you watch it like you could interpret it that way potentially i've also seen videos to debunk the entire thing as well but um that they basically lead her and like off to like kill her um like terrorize her basically and kill her um and there's theories like that as well um is there any other like notable theory? Those are the two notable theories. Uh, right? the, the two it's the two fishermen that are fucking with them. Right. Um fuck yeah the 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 theory that you were talking about is that heather and josh used to date each other because of like a couple lines of dialogue Uh uh-huh um 
and that Josh is still obsessed with her, and that's why like he's yeah roped Mike into helping him like murder murder right. um, yeah, because she doesn't know Mike, but he knows Mike, right? Which is why you see, which is why Mike is in the corner, because he's the bait to lead her mm-hmm. eye away from where Josh is, and Josh is the one that hits her, right? At the end, and that's why the camera falls down. Yeah. Um, the original ending of the movie too was supposed to be all those little stick figures hanging from the ceiling around Mike in the corner, um, but they thought it was too distracting. Another interesting thing. This is my last. And Ryan, were you done? I'm sorry. I don't mean to. You keep getting cut off with your. No, it's fine. I had one more thing that I just thought about, but I only have one more thing left. So go ahead. Um, all the writing on the walls in the at the end, um, are a combination of like Futhark runes and some other like pre-English like runes. Um, and they're all written backwards because they're supposed to be curses, but they all say shit, like real shit on the walls. I don't know what any of that stuff is, but they That's have cool. it's actually right. I actually thought rewatching, like, you know, and like the ending was like that shit and the child's handprints are like really fucking cool and creepy. Like, I mean, um, yeah, like I, I love like the last like five minutes of that movie, like, even even if it doesn't have a conclusive ending or anything like that, like, I really love like the way all that's done, like, inside of that house. I, I love hearing her shrieking like from mike's camera like i i i i still really like this movie like a lot overall like um and think it like kind of holds up considering but um sorry ryan like what was your last point that you were gonna make (laughs) the last thing i was gonna say is when mike was talking about was you opened up the cloth and was trying to look at the 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 whatever body parts in there i was like doing the same thing and i was like what is that going on? It's like a pink blob. And I was like, well, maybe it's maybe there's an eyeball in there. And I was like, I think it might be just a piece of flesh. Like I I couldn't figure out what was going on. And I was like, I don't know. You know the point. I was probably checking my watch. <laughs> you know what's funny? Yeah, I know you texted me that, but it's like I think I was just like at that point, like I don't think I paid attention to what was in the cloth this time like that mm. that closely like i looked at it and glanced at it and like just like didn't really pay much attention because i think i think where it's like to... i i would have obsessed over that stuff at one point like you know oh what's in the cloth let me like zoom in on it like let me look at it like <laughs> i think i actually like this movie more the idea of i don't know what the fuck's going on and just accepting it like you want to know what's in the cloth yeah sure it's uh two teeth um some of josh's hair and then fake blood I did thought I saw some I thought I saw some hair in there. They and actually she, um oh go ahead. Ruben. She moves he, he moves she moves the cloth over at some point, like and then lets out like 13 more gasps. And then I think I thought I saw like a, a white tooth out there in the in the side or something. Yeah, so it's Eduardo Sanchez's dentist took like castings from teeth um and gave them to him. <laughs> so that's what it is. Um yeah, like I, I, I think I, I focused especially this time less on that stuff and just the idea of like delving into the experience like of like these three young people breaking down through this like experience in the woods and just kind of like tried to like empathize or maybe sympathize I guess with them um and focus less on the supernatural stuff and that actually is more terrifying to me 
the idea of like not knowing where the fuck you are in the woods um is actually more terrifying to me than the the idea of like the Blair Witch or anything like that anymore like um so yeah I didn't even really barely I barely paid attention to what was in the um in the handkerchief or whatever like um this time around because uh that whole like idea of just being lost was more terrifying to me the reality of it and like the idea of like being in conflict with these people that you're out in the woods with is uh so much more terrifying to me yeah she um she fucked it up too because she initially just like kicks it the bundle of six and they had to tell her like hey you should open that up um because <laughs> she had no idea like what it was or what was in right it. Huh. and that's the story of every prank that i've ever tried to pull on anyone <laughs> <laughs> they just no sell it no it's like oh no that's not what you're supposed to do you're supposed to you know you're supposed to sit down in the chair and then you get the good prank <laughs> oh man like you ever tried to get somebody with a whoopee cushion i have never done that yeah I've, no, I, I mean i i've tried to it's never succeeded it's hard <laughs> I, I'll be honest. I'm trying to think of like how many pranks I've tried to pull in my life. I don't think there's many pranks I've ever tried to pull. I mean, you watch TV and you see people they put buckets up on doors and people are sure, yeah, soaked. like the carry shit. Yeah, that stuff never works in real life. No, <laughs> like I, I, yeah, I don't think I've ever really tried to prank somebody. Like I've, I've done stuff where I've told people disinformation to just like get their reaction. Like um, before, <laughs> like. I remember there was a quick, quick story. I remember there was a time where like I, I was up on um, 896 near a bit of Scotland and um, I told there was a car accident and I told Colin like this, I, I it was very well crafted. I told him that um, governor Christine Todd Whitman had been in a car accident um, on 896 and like, he was like, what? Like, that's crazy. Like, you know, and it was like, just just real enough <laughs> that like he believed me um and it's like so i've done that kind of stuff before to prank people but i've never done any kind of like advanced prank like a, like trying to get somebody to sit on something or like anything like that like i think it's some kind of golden rule shit because i would fucking hate somebody if they try to do that to me <laughs> i um i stretched cellophane across the toilet at my parents' house when I was like 12 years old, I got yelled <laughs> at for cellophane. <laughs> uh, my most successful prank was this one night before bedtime, I went and got into my uh, sister's bed and I got under the covers and totally covered up myself so that you couldn't tell I was in the bed. And she came in oh, to go to bed and she sat down and she put her hand down and it, oh, <laughs> she put God. her hand down right on my leg uh-huh and she screamed uh-huh. and jumped up and ran out of her room uh-huh the most I... disappointing thing is that she doesn't remember this oh <laughs> but i do traumatized her so much <laughs> that she yeah she buried it. it right but i've been reliving it ever since <laughs> <laughs> i I would hate anybody that tried to do something like that to me. Like, like at least momentarily, I would fucking despise them. Like, I, I don't want any of that kind of shit. Like, <laughs> so I, feel like I, I feel like I pranked you once and you got really angry about it. Oh, absolutely. 
I'm sure I did. I do not like surprises. I left those um uh marshmallow peeps. Yeah, that was funny. Like I didn't I didn't get angry over that. Like like I I was like uh, no, I was more freaked out by it than so just for full disclosure here of like the story is that I um through childhood trauma I I have issues like looking at peeps um to some degree like it used to give me panic attacks and um fucking Frank knew this and like ended up like putting peeps on the dashboard of my car um when I like didn't like after like whatever we probably went out and got coffee or something you put them on there and um, I went out in the morning to get in my car and there's these peeps sitting on my fucking dashboard um and you a trigger warning (laughs) no he did not and um (laughs) what was funny is like years later I ended up telling that in class to a like maybe like 2013 or 14 I told a class that and I came in around Easter time after telling them like that issue um, that I used to have, and my lectern was just like just a row of peeps, um, <laughs> like just on there. Um, but no, both of those things were very funny. Like it didn't like trigger me or cause me to have a reaction. Like I understood the intent. Um, but Can I um, tell you a, a weird Blair Witch fact. Yeah. <laughs> so Heather Donahue. She she continued an acting career for a while, but mm-hmm. then she became a marijuana grower. Oh. And she recently published a book called Grow Girl. <laughs> uh, that tells of her stories as a as a weed grower. Hmm. Um that doesn't doesn't surprise me necessarily, I guess, but it's a good fact. Um I want to say I've seen Josh Leonard and stuff. Um, he looks so familiar to me. I don't like know I, why. I like. I'm pretty sure. Like, if I looked him up, um, uh, he's just a bellhop in that. I've seen that. Um, oh, Unsane. Yeah, he's in that um, as kind of a lead, and I've seen that movie. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Um, Steven Soderbergh psychological thriller um that i got drunk and watched one night on amazon um but yeah but yeah i I have seen him recently in stuff um he's fine so but so you want to finish this off here like um just telling telling about like um which i don't remember being blair witch inspired necessarily like i it has to be but it but you're um but we used How long to is this podcast uh, I, I, was, I i gotta pee i'm thinking the same thing we still got to do the number one movie <laughs> kayfabe i'll keep it i'll keep it very brief very yeah. brief i would say yeah it was definitely blair witch um it it uh, the movie inspired a period of ghost hunting and and um, late night exploration oh. <laughs> around <laughs> around uh, the 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 rural areas in Northeast Maryland, mm-hmm. and um, we did actually go to a place nearby where we grew up. Um, 
in in a place in the woods that contains some old ruins from I, I don't know where I don't I'm mean, old stone houses basically, and the locals call them the witch houses, mm-hmm. and we would go in there. Well, we went in there a couple times. I think we went in there one time during the day, maybe one, maybe once at night. I'm not sure. I only went with night with you, but yeah. What'd you say? I only went at night with you. Oh, okay. Yeah. I just remember going in there and like basically, you know, but we also we also used to do we have some ur- urban legends here where um you know different ghost stories and stuff, uh, where you you drive out into the woods and you say a name three times and that kind of thing. I'll I'll leave the legend unnamed. But um <laughs> but uh yeah, I mean whenever you're in a situation like that, like it's always fun to go with a group because you're kind of like trying to you're kind of playing off of each other's fear and the the collective but the collective fear kind of gets ramped up because you're all you know you're, you're you're all kind of like creeping each other out and uh when we went to explore the witch houses i know we went down there and we went into the woods and we were walking around in the in the ruined houses and we were uh i don't know i don't know exactly what what happened but i remember we heard something or we saw something and we all ran like hell to get back to the car uh kind of like that scene in blair witch where they're yeah. where where they're running out of the tent uh-huh and we ran like hell and like got back to the road and and i don't think we ever went back yeah i don't know if that was the night that you i can't remember if that was the night that i went with you or not i know you went with a couple other people like one time um at night as well and i know the night that we went is the night the bat flew in my face sound and then i have that oh yeah maybe that was it i have i have a you know old you know camcorder yeah we were taping yeah where i was uh, yeah it's on tape um if and if anybody could ever play it again um ryan um but um but yeah like um he's on it he's he's looking at the at the flea markets for (laughs) shit to like potentially play that shit at some point but um uh but yeah so we have that on tape like where the fat like flew in my face when i was recording um but yeah, like that. Uh, the, but the thing I remember actually most out of that, and I knew it had to be Blair Witch inspired when you mentioned it. But it's like the thing I remember most about it is: Do you remember listening to the Eyes Wide Shut soundtrack? Um, yeah, I do. Yeah, which is six months later. It's July of '99. Oh, when we we're driving down to Pig Woman. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. So yeah. Pig Woman, Pig Woman is the local urban legend where you yeah. drive down to Pig Woman Bridge. Yeah, and get out of the car and say her name three times or something. Yeah, and, uh-huh. um, yeah. and um, the the road that leads to the bridge, it's paved for a while, and then it turns into a single lane, uh-huh. and then it pretty much turns into gravel and then dirt. Right. And is that where we were? We were listening to the Eyes Wide Shut soundtrack. Oh yeah, all, all down um, Old Elkback Road, <laughs> right? Pretty much, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, and there's like some really creepy stuff on that soundtrack. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's it's a good it's a good score. I mean, like that they do like with all that stuff. Um, but yeah, and we have and there's video of that too. It's like there's this, like the one time we went down there, and it's like metal on metal noise. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like under, it sounded under, like somebody was under the bridge. Yeah, like hitting metal on metal. Yeah, um, yeah, because uh, I remember our friend uh, 
me and Eric Watt went down the next day to like look under there to see like what was metal like under that bridge <laughs> like to see if like basically we were oh yeah, yeah. Uh, we met down there like and like it was like daytime and like we were like trying to basically debunk like um what the fuck could this um yeah what was this like metal metal sound um but yeah no that's true and it's like i and like i don't know like Frank, do you think the whole ghost hunting thing, like, you know, ghost hunters and, like, all this, like, shit that, like, developed out of that, like, is in part possibly because of, like, things like Blair Witch? Because Ghost Hunters is, I think, what, like, three, four years later, maybe? Like, yeah. I mean, possibly. I A lot of that stuff existed, though, like, pre-Blair Witch. I mean, I used to read books on the paranormal all the time when I was a kid and a teenager and read about like ghost hunting societies and stuff so maybe yeah. the presentation of it, it i would say is 100 percent like inspired by blair witch but you know i don't know yeah um hmm. all right well this has probably been what like an hour long um about this episode but i mean i i, I think this is one of those things that warrants it um uh, i'm gonna I think I've already told Frank I'm gonna like force Frank next year in October to do his top five favorite found footage movies. Um, and the only reason we would ever be doing that is like largely because of Blair Witch and I guess like the last broadcast that came out in 1998. Um, but Blair Witch popularizing this genre is the only reason that like that category, like you know that episode would ever exist. Um, so I think it's worth like kind of like doing a deep dive and delving into like past and present viewings of it so all right well orion uh mike thank you very much for joining us um and we're going to move on to the number one episode all right so you ready to move on to number one frank uh really quick i want to talk about um the sequel to this movie um like the legitimate sequel and not the book of shadows nonsense um which 2016's the blair witch um and just kind of as a counterpoint to the positive things that we talked about in the Blair Witch and just sort of like the visceral almost like gorilla aspect of filmmaking um a very contrived um quote-unquote found footage movie that never feels like it's any found footage like it always feels like super staged and incredibly unconvincing and inappropriate that these people would still be using their cameras um I think it's interesting that like these people tried to make the sequel in order to sort of explain what happened to specifically um, Heather Donahue uh, because the movie revolves around her brother going back into the Burkittsville woods, the Black Hills to try and find her um, and then getting stuck in the woods. Um, and it's just so, so crass, like in its approach Um but I think it really does a disservice to the first movie, um, particularly just like one of the best things about the Blair Witch Project, you know, is the idea that you never really see like anything, you know, it's it's more about the horror of like watching other people have horrific things happen around them as opposed to like, I don't know, like in the 2016 movie. Um, one of the people grabs like one of the little stick people and breaks it in half and it causes a woman like to break in half like in real life and it's just so dumb um, so 
if you're ever tempted to watch the 2016 Blair Witch sequel, you should just probably watch something else because it's not particularly worth your time. So that's my PSA. That movie, because you told me you're going to watch it, like whatever week ago and sometime this week or whatever. And um, I was really confused on whether I'd watched it before. Cause then you're like, nah, you watched it like in like what last in the summer? summer, I think. Yeah, like or this summer or last summer or something. And I can't remember when I watched it. And I was like a little incredulous. Like, I don't think I watched this. I think I was getting it confused. And um, and then I started watching it and I realized, like, oh yeah, I have watched this movie, but it was still like watching kind of a new movie because I think I was so bored the first time I was watching it that there's just like elements of the plot. I'll put plot in quotation marks um, <clears throat> that I missed that like some of it was like watching a new movie. The only thing I remembered really was like the, be- the very first five minutes and the last five minutes and like a couple things that happen in the middle. And like that movie is so damn dull and just, yeah, like you said, like contrived and forced that um, there's nothing memorable like about it, like at all. Um, it's It's really bad. And uh yeah 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 never watched that movie um well how do you feel about book of shadows though better or worse i really than don't the 2016 i mean it's better but it's just a matter of degrees it's i have very little recollection of book of shadows and it's legitimately been 20 years since i've seen that movie or however old like 18 19 years whatever it's been since it was out in theaters um I thought it was a dumb idea then to have a sequel to it. And I was kind of like even more put out by the idea of the sequel in 2016, like no desire to see that movie at all. I, the trailers were terrible, but and even beyond that, I think that the Blair Witch stands on its own as a artifact of the time. And I think that's enough. And some things don't need to become franchises and some things don't need sequels. And that's one of those movies that just needs to be, its own thing plus the idea of like i don't know whatever dumb just leave well enough alone right well the discussion of blair witch and i guess last broadcast um as well um did eventually like lead us like me and like i guess wanting you to do found footage next october like as one of our like you know primary um you know october horror episodes so um that'll be interesting like you know to go back and because I watch a lot of that stuff, even if it's really bad, um, since COVID started, and you've seen a lot of, uh, like, a hell of a lot more than me, and oh, so yeah. it'll, be, it'll be interesting to, like, see. Several, like, you know. several dozen. Yeah. The funny thing was, is going back, so at, we, we, we talked about this a few weeks ago, and I just went and did, like, a cursory look through Wikipedia and IMDb yeah. of um, lists of found footage horror films, and I was really surprised that within, like, 10 minutes of just like random internet search i had at least a dozen that i would consider putting on a list of the top 10 or top mm-hmm. five yeah um so it, it it should be a pretty interesting list next year right yeah no I, I, I see it yeah i'm looking forward to it uh we've already determined that we're doing that and we're going to wrap up the 80s um because we did uh the top you know five horror b movies of the 1980s uh two years ago um over a 10 month span and uh we're gonna 
do the top five mainstream horror movies of the 80s to kind of fill in the gaps of movies that were released that were uh, a little bit more mainstream um, uh, than the ones that we covered. So that's going to end up being like a really solid list too, I know, um, out of that. So I'm already looking forward to a year from now. Um, as we will also be wrapping up, uh, we've already decided the top five uh, movies of 19, horror movies in 1979, because we're going to do 70s horror next year, um, which I'm nervous about, but um, we'll see. <laughs> All right, so let's uh, move on to the number one movie on your list. We have talked about this previously. Um, I can't remember what episode, honestly, at this point anymore. Um, of, Psychological horror? Is it? Yes. Okay. It was that. Uh, yeah, one of our more popular episodes and been downloaded a lot recently um, out of nowhere. So I guess because it's October. So, um, yeah, so... Uh, number one on your list is Audition, um, directed by Takashi Miike. Um, has an eighty-two percent from critics, eighty percent from audiences. We've talked about this, like you know, at length before. Um, and I know your love for this movie and our conversation. If I could summarize from last time, was me coming around to this movie more, having had a more negative. I, I never hated it, but it was like I, I had a. I had a less than favorable opinion when I first watched it. And I had a more favorable opinion of it last time. And you absolutely love this movie. Um, so do you want to recount like why you like this movie so much? So I look at this movie as being one of those really rare film experiences where you see something for the first time and it, like immediately captures your imagination and your attention and you're riveted to what's happening on the screen. And it's so well-crafted that it just begs repeat viewings. And that every time you watch it, maybe you don't see something different, but it still impresses you with its, like for this movie specifically, um, I think that Mikay does a tremendous job of keeping you at odds with real the reality of what's happening in the movie to the point where even after like one of the pivotal scenes at the end, so the first um, introduction of like the torture element, you still think that maybe that is not the reality and maybe it is just him like having second thoughts about you know using subterfuge to like gain this young attractive wife um that maybe it's like his regret coming back on him but then like they come back and it's definitely him being fucking tortured and it was him going to his whatever like subconscious because of the shock um where he was like having those regrets sort of like trying to rationalize it in a more um what's the word I'm looking for, like, uh, non-horrific way. Um, it's definitely a slow burn of a movie, but it's a slow burn and that also has these elements of, like, abstract horror that are just, like, shoved in at different intervals um, to keep you off balance. Like, I think that, especially the first time you see this movie, I think it is very... Um, very uncomfortable to watch because 
there's a palpable feeling of dread for no reason sometimes and Mike does a fantastic job of like yes. building that dread and popping it and then like bringing you back down into like you know 10-15 minutes of just a normal movie and then bringing it back up and then like giving you another pop and then bringing it back down um her waiting by the phone with like the body in the sack like that's fucking fantastic scene um the old crippled man that's like putting the um rods like like heated rods out on her legs friggin' like disgusting and horrifying and um especially the end of this movie the last 20 minutes of this movie is one of the most um intense horror experiences i think of the past like 30 years um and at the time this movie was released so i knew about takashi Mike, and maybe i had seen maybe i had seen a couple of his movies at this point i can't remember if i saw categories before or after this um but this was a movie that like i had read about and it released on dvd and i actually um ordered it special and was super excited to get it and ended up watching it like twice within the first day that i had it um and was so blown away by the visuals and the story and just the brutality of that last 20 minutes um both on her part with you know the kiri 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 like with the acupuncture needles um and then the removal of his um feet with the um piano wire and then just the like her like quick and brutal end of getting like kicked down the stairs and um breaking her neck and then just like laying there with like that vertebrae like sticking up through the skin of oh my god it's so so gruesome and yet so peaceful at the same time and she still is like so menacing even though she's dead um and it's like it's so creepy in other ways too like from just a humanistic standpoint of the idea of like these old rich men using their wealth and influence to basically trick young women into sleeping with them you know like yeah it's yeah like hey your wife is dead but don't you feel like you're owed another younger wife like let's um let's trick some woman into like thinking she has a chance to become famous by effing you <clears throat> and maybe she'll just decide to marry you as a result like it's just so kind of a condemnation i think of like the japanese so we, we we talked about this when we talked about the movie the last time but um they were called like home movies h-o-m-e um and not home movies in the sense of like you know videotaping your family but just these kind of pablum like happy ending i'm gonna stay strong for you like that whole japanese honor and whatever bullshit um was super popular at the time and Mike is really making fun of that idea here right with like the idea that this woman is pretending to be that and this man is pretending to be you know something that he's not and in the end like neither of them gets what they're looking for um yeah just I don't know it's an amazing movie one of my one of my 20 favorite horror movies of all time uh-huh. I would say with confidence. I was actually thinking of what that list is tonight because I was watching another one of my um another movie that I'm just as enthusiastic in my praise, which is uh John Carpenter's The Thing. <clears throat> I was watching this evening. 
And just, I was thinking the same thing, like, man, like every time I watch this movie, I just love this movie so much. And I watch audition probably on average, like once a year, I would say. Mm. Um, and it always, always impresses. I always love it. So, yeah. So. And Mika is just one of the most prolific directors really of the past, like, like three decades, honestly. Yeah. Um, I mean, the man's made hundreds of movies at this point and is so adept at like just kind of like flowing between genres where one of your favorite movies of his, The Happiness of the Katakuris, is mm-hmm. this dark, like musical comedy, basically. Uh-huh. Um, almost like this fever dream, like serial killer, zombie, I, whatever. I don't know. It's just, ridiculous movie but it's amazing and then you watch something like um he did a version of like zatoichi you know that it's really like classical and pays homage to the old samurai movies and yeah i mean i i like happiness katakuri so i like one must call um i like um i like gozu for large parts of it um yeah. like i so did you ever see um 13 13 samurai 13 assassins sorry yeah so yeah. it's called 13 yeah 13 assassins. Basically yeah, I, his, I, I did yeah mm-hmm. his take on the dirty dozen i guess or whatever um that movie's really good mm-hmm. i know that you don't like it very much but like i think ichi the killer is a pretty amazing movie like i don't know dread dreading watching ichi again someday um but oh, it's I'll, I'll watch it oh i know well, um saving it there's certain <laughs> movies that like i have enough respect for you that like i'm not just going to throw them on a list but i'm definitely saving them for a list right where like it won't be me um you know yeah yeah, yeah. I, no i mean I, I i have to watch it again someday Ichi. but um in terms of this movie i finally come around to it in the sense that I always knew it was a good movie. It was just whether I liked it or not. And I've come around to understanding that this is a great movie. Um, And I've come around on liking it more the more I see it. I think I was so... I think seeing it in my early 20s, I was so shocked by the tonal change that happens. Where as creepy as the premise is of this old of these old guys like trying to like basically hold casting calls like um for new wives and shit like that like it like the total change of this kind of like rom-com or i guess home movies or whatever like you know to balls to the wall torture porn um really like kind of upset me when i first saw it like it didn't shock me it just upset me and i think the problem still always is going to be i do not like the torture shit at all like in in anything like i'm not a fan of like watching that kind of stuff i can bear with it more i think when i've seen it before and i can watch it again like it's like it's not as like upsetting to me um because i can dissociate i can or you know compartmentalize or something like you know as i'm seeing it 
but I think the reason like it's growing on me more and I don't know if I'll ever watch this ever again in my entire life I'll be honest I mean I think I I got it now like and it's like how I feel about it is how I feel about it unless like I watch it in like if I survive another like 15 or 20 years maybe it'd be worth watching again see how I feel but um but it's like it's never justified but it's like I get the point it's like this is a really like early proto-feminist movie like you know um like it's way ahead of its time like way ahead of its time it feels like Um, so about the about the, the 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 traumatized abused woman who takes revenge on the culture that causes that like it's way ahead of its time and i can appreciate that aspect of it it, the torture is just always going to get me. It makes me cringe so much watching that stuff. Like, yeah, I'm I'm gonna take umbrage with you a little bit with like your classification of it. So, it's not torture porn. I mean, you're not supposed to be titillated by it at all. It's supposed to be horrifying. Yeah, okay. Like, there's there's definitely movies like the hostile movies, and even more so. And we've talked about this recently, like the guinea pig movies, um, from the '80s in japan that legitimately are meant to be like it's gore and torture for their own sakes just to titillate you for people I, that like I that think, stuff. okay so let me say this i think Mike kind of gets off on it a little bit no i don't know about that i don't agree with that at all i think i think ichi also shows that he like kind of like gets off on it a little bit he likes he gets it's not that he gets off on the torture he gets off on the idea of shocking you with the torture well, I mean, but that's his thing as like an auteur, right? Like I- Ichi is grand, grand Gignol, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's hyper stylized because it's like a mockery of Yakuza, like superhero movies, basically. Whereas this is shocking because it's like, so it's so visceral and so like immediate like her change from this wilting flower you know that you've seen her as the whole movie to this domineering like surgeon basically or butcher i guess maybe is a better term um and because you've been made to like this man even though he's a, a terrible person in a lot of ways and has definitely abused his power i mean well that's that's the key to it is that he is a likable dude despite what we would say nowadays is like yeah like using his privilege like you know his male privilege and to, like, you know and has and has done it multiple times because right, right. He sexually harassed his assistant sure and got her to give him a blowjob in the office and then sure. like basically blacklisted her so i mean this is a guy that's not you're you're getting like one element of his personality that's made or one element of his life that's supposed to make you think that he's a decent guy but then enough of like this darker element that shows that he's like a serial or at least has a potential to be a serial abuser of women and to your point like it's it's it is feminist in the sense of you know i mean it's not like a a literal castration but definitely like an emasculation from a psychological standpoint um i don't know like i i i feel that when 
it's like look, mis- like, misery, misery. Like, look, I think misery is horrific when we rewatch that. Like, you know, and it's like with the breaking of like you know, like the ankles and all those kind of things. I mean, it's fucking horrifying. Like, yes, this is horrifying, but it's like the nature of the torture itself of the thing that is happening um, is so to me like unnecessarily grotesque to force the point of like what you're supposed to feel god it's it's not that different from the colors frank like honestly it's just like a slightly different thing it's like it's so over the top like you know the the torture aspect of it that like it's like okay got it got it done like you know i mean and i i do think he gets off on shocking you with the torture so maybe that's not torture porn per se like i see your point but it's like i still think he gets off on shocking people with how graphic he can be to like jolt you um and that aspect of him is the thing that like always like makes me uncomfortable with Mikay is like how he does that like i think that's just his style i don't know that's fine like i'll go i like so marathon man right like there's mm-hmm. some pretty her scenes in that movie. Yeah. But they're part of the narrative. Like it's it's made to make you uncomfortable because it's there for the narrative's sake. Sure. Same thing with a movie like Straw Dogs or I don't know. It's not something like a man called Horse where they're suspect like putting barbs through the dude's boobs and hanging them up from like a tree, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. There's a, I don't know, it, it, I guess it's a fine line, and I suppose it's all subjective to your own case, but to me, there's, there's exploitive, you asked me the other day, we were talking about the found footage list, and you asked me, will Cannibal Holocaust be on that list? Mm-hmm. And I told you that, you know, 20 years ago, I would have said 100%, because, like, I used to love that movie. Sure. But as I've gotten older, like, I find the exploitive nature of, like, not only like the animal murder which i think is fucking reprehensible now yes, but also right, sure. it's like the the depiction of human torture in that movie i find to be exploitive like i don't really see right i don't really see anything that like edifying about watching that whereas and i've seen this movie without exaggeration probably like 16 or 17 times in my life never feel that way about this like it never feels overtly exploitive to me it always feels like it serves the narrative and the the theme that Mike is is selling. So mm. and maybe he does like maybe he relishes in it a little bit, but I think it's because he relishes in like the overall depiction of the narrative as opposed to just like being like overtly shocking for no reason. I mean, because he definitely shows restraint other times he in does. other movies. Yeah. Yeah, in other movies, sure. Yeah, he does. I, I mean, it, where, 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 to his credit, like somebody like, well, that's not true either. Um, I, I've always kind of like in my mind equated him with John Waters, like as a, as like a, as somewhat of an American counterpart in the sense of like, of just trying to like shock you, like, um, and John Waters can show restraint too. <laughs> um, he's proven it. And we've I mean, talked I, about some look, of those I don't, movies. I don't, I don't think that's a bad comparison. Yeah. Um, uh, like, but, but, not, I, but I feel the same the, the, the same way I've, like, you know, talked about John Waters before and, like, you know, appreciating, like, what he's going for. 
but then like seeing it and like how it physically makes me feel i feel that way about Nikkei sometimes it's the same thing it's interesting because you know i feel about john waters too sure sure um, I always value the artistry over, you know, I don't mind being uncomfortable, I guess. And I like. Well, you absolutely do. It's in different ways, though. Oh, but that's sure. Sure. I don't mind being uncomfortable. You can't, you can't, even, you can't even watch Recurring Enthusiasm anymore because that kind of stuff makes you uncomfortable. Yeah, that stuff really bothers me. Yeah. I mean. I, 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 I could still watch it. I just choose not to. <laughs> <laughs> um. But I, I think it's real world stuff that makes you really uncomfortable a lot of times, like how people interacting with one another and those kind of things that make you uncomfortable as opposed to like these things that are maybe more extreme or like un- like rare or maybe fantasy. Like, I, I think those kind of things bother me much more than the real life stuff. Um, but yeah, like, I, look, this is a great movie. It is. Uh, I, I mean, I would go so far as called a masterpiece. It, I still just have like problems with like Mike and the sense of like the the shock value to me, at least to me, shock value torture stuff that he does in in at the end of this, and um, and then of course in Ichi, like very bothersome and in that movie so i'll look forward to watching that one someday again Um, i wonder i wonder if ichi never existed if you would still feel the same i think i saw this before Ichi. probably and i really and i disliked it the first time because of all that so um you're just soft (laughs) maybe maybe um yeah but it's like i mean remember my reaction to uh oh god what a, a bone tomahawk um zoller um that was the first time a movie in that long i remember when we talked about bone tomahawk like with that gruesome fucking splitting scene that happens in that like i told you i like got like i almost got i felt like i was going to get physically ill um so i do react to those kind of things um that i appreciated though because it's because of the quickness i think it's like slowness of torture like the more you like prolong it like the more gratuitous it becomes to me sure and i think that's something that mikay does when he does do this torture stuff and it's certainly shit that like fucking eli broth and shit does like you know i mean and some of the saw movies and shit do and it's like um yeah but um but no i mean yeah, this movie's I wouldn't put in my top 20 because of my own personal feelings, but objectively, yeah, sure. I I see it. Like, I mean, absolutely. Um this is uh I'm like shaking. I'm like shiver like when I like think about like the end of that movie, like if I picture like some of the scenes and stuff sometimes. So I guess it's just yeah, I, I what I'm a pussy, right? Like um I didn't see that. No, that's what you that's that's what's just uh, like said you I, I said you saw let's 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 just good thing let's just um you got all that empathy inside you you're a big old <laughs> big old big old empathetic bear <laughs> uh, i've been called a bear before but not an empathetic one um 
So I'm just adding more adjectives to your uh, your arsenal. <laughs> I don't think I've ever been accused of being empathetic. Um, <clears throat> it's not a very good accusation. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're done, Frank. Like this is two and decades, the 90s. two decades now. Um, yeah, we're we're done with. Um, so. I don't have we mentioned it before. It's like I, I know we've mentioned we're going to do seventies next year, but um, at this point, like, if there's a terminal point in my mind of the podcast ever, which this isn't something I'm thinking of as a terminal point, but it's like if there's ever a terminal point, the thing that I want to get through is at least three more years to cover the seventies, the two thousands, and the two thousand and tens. So that basically you can cover 50 years of horror. Um, And then we'll see what what's going on. You know, I mean, like at that point. But um, that's 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 my like short term goal, I guess, at this point, Um, given health and, you know, um, you know, so at that point, we'll almost be we'll almost be able to do the 2000. uh, Some part of the 2020s. Sure. And yeah. there will probably be at least like 72 Nick Cage movies between now and then. So, right. And you'll, um, you know, well, you'll put, you know, you'll put like, you know, most of those movies on the Fresh Fives, um, of those horror movies, like, um, oh, yeah, that's that are, probably that any good. So, um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, it's like that's, um, that's where we're going. And then, yeah, I definitely think 70s, 2000s, 2010s um, is is the way that we go. And um, I'm going to give you one episode to cover your 19, like, I'll, I'll give you, maybe I'll give you an episode of Decade um, to cover your pre-1970s shit, because I can't deal with that. It's fucked can't, up. Can't deal with it. I can't do, like, those decades. There's not enough in those decades anymore. I'm just make you watch Blood on Satan's Claw again. Uh, okay, that's fine. Um, all right. I feel accomplished you know though. You know, you know, you're going to get a lot of those movies in the '70s too. I know. I know. At least that's why. That's why I'm dreading. That's why I'm kind of like half dreading the '70s. I know there's some really good stuff, and you're not and. Season season of the witch isn't going to like appear like in that year probably like because you don't like that uh, movie. Because, you want to talk, you talk about it. You want to talk about it ahead of its time, man. Like you want to talk about it ahead of its time. Way ahead of its time. Way if ahead ever, of its time. Listeners, if you ever want to like have pretension wash all over you, like fucking urine from I don't know George Romero's rotten dick, like go watch season of the witch. That's make that's, you feel that's, good. That's, that's that's the Mike and you coming out right there. That's gross. <clears throat> I gross felt like it was for, very poetic for, for shock value. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, I'm, I'm, kidding, I'm dying. It almost was a lot worse. Trust me. I just I I I edited myself heavily in the in the execution. So <laughs> all right. So um so yeah, that's it for us this year in terms of horror um we will um 
be back next week with uh, the top five motorsports movies with um, friends. Is of that next week? That is next week. You got a lot. Oh my of, god! I haven't. You got, you I haven't got watched any of them. You got a lot of a lot of cars to watch racing around the track, uh, Frank. Um, top five motorsports movies. Something different from us. Something you would never hear from us ever. But that is because. The movies were picked by a friend of the podcast, Jason Heaster, um, and he will be covering those movies uh, with us. And um, then we will be back the week after that with a fresh five episode, basically from the past, like roughly like six months of Frank's like top five movies, um, regardless of genre, year, you know, um, that he's watched in like the past six months, um, which I've watched three of those now, um, and all very good. And then, um, then we'll be finishing up the year with, um, what we've been doing the past couple of years, which is we will be covering the top five films of 1971, 1981, 1991, and night and 2001. Um, which, um, is always like my favorite time of the year is, getting Frank's like top movies of those years because you know even if there's a couple of them I don't like um you know overall it's like um they're always quality movies even if I personally you know like have like issues with some of them um and it's actual it's actual film to me you know um they're and, all good movies yeah um it's that distinction I make between film and movies you know sometimes um not to toot my own horn but uh yeah yeah they are they are um and i and i'm i'm always excited because some of them i've never seen like you know and if frank says that they're like the best of the year that year it's like i'm always excited to like watch those if i've never seen them um so yeah and then we'll have a special like christmas episode like we do every year like our end of the year episode um which will be winter theme this year um at least and then um yeah i guess in december we'll have to start breaking it down right frank like um like figuring out we have a number of episodes like already planned uh like conceptually um but we'll yeah. have to start breaking down like the uh the actual episode order um in the meantime we have two quick cage episodes left um this week will be uh coming up will be uh nick cage's voice acting performances and his like what like eight like animated movies and i get to cross those bitches or highlight those bitches off the like the master list and then um in two weeks we'll be covering um fucking mama fratelli's um piccolo right like um and, i wish that that was a movie <laughs> and um uh oh have i never used what's 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 that actor's name that um plays ralphie in the sopranos fuck's his name i don't know what his name is uh he has like a name that ends in something like that like that i could have used at some point apparently yeah pan- <laughs> Pantaleone. Um, I could have always used Pantaleone when I when I mocked Captain Corelli's. Um, well, you got two weeks to do it, motherfucker. So yeah, now it's now it's worthless. But we'll be covering that, and then we are done with the quick cage. Um, Shot his load year, on a dry until, run until next year um, when we get to talk about 
his two westerns and then a crime movie i think um that'll be coming out and one of those westerns um in the news this week um which we'll probably talk about i figure on the quick cage this coming week a little bit and then um yeah then if like yeah you're you're really hard up for two guys like we also have the um best 30 minutes podcast with our friends uh ryan willmaker and michael bledsoe uh, where we now have four episodes uh, up, and we were doing that bi-weekly, and our last episode that we just recorded last night was the st- stupidest injuries, or stupid injuries, um, which was uh, us accounting all of our, like, each individual, our dumbest, like, injury, kind of, that we've ever suffered, uh, which was fun and different, like, compared to what we've done so far. Was told by someone who would never deign to listen to the actual podcast because it's too long that they really enjoyed um, the best thirty minutes podcast. So that's funny. But if you've you if, have to tell if you've me made who it that this is far, off air, like you know, who can't do long form podcasts? Are you just think of someone with no attention span, and you'll you'll get it. Um. <laughs> So anyway, so if you've gotten this far, you probably don't need that kind of advertisement, but, um, you know, whatever, you should go listen to it because they're pretty funny. Yeah. Whatever. You you need to jump in, Frank, like, you know, like early on, because, you know, I always forget until the very end here, like, like to, to do that kind of stuff. Like I used to remember better, like at one point, but um, I don't anymore. Are we going to ever have Gozu on a list? Because I want to watch that movie again someday. Sure. All right. Best um best manimal movies. How's that? <laughs> okay. All right. So in 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 2024. <laughs> well, um, you know I still never you know you've mentioned two movies tonight that I haven't watched purposely because because I'm waiting for you to put them on a list someday. And what are they? I remember Revenant was one. I still haven't watched it. Um, really? Oh, that'd yeah, be amazing. I, I'm, I'm waiting. I'm waiting and I'm waiting to watch it for the first time until it's on a podcast. And um, it's also not anywhere ever for some reason. Like in it's terms somewhere of right free. now. Oh, it's free for Frank. I understand that. It's always free for Frank. But um, exists. Yes. <laughs> um. I am human and I need to be loved. Oh, Train Spotting 2. I still haven't watched that. What? It wasn't uh, free anymore when after you told me that like, you watched it, I went to go watch it and it was no longer free. And it's like, you know what? I'm going to save that until Frank puts it on a podcast someday. I don't know what podcast that's ever showing on them. Best sequels that we the, never talked to, about anywhere best, else. Best, right. Best sequels to 90s movies. Um I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Right. I don't know. You didn't. We got well, to do some research. Yeah. Do train you know? spotting too. Right. 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 All right. Well, thank you for um, listening, everybody. Thank you for all the downloads on um, these horror episodes. Like you know, over the past like couple months, um, really appreciate it. And um, yeah, have a good week. Happy Halloween. Deuces. Appreciate you. <laughs>